Renowned supply chain scholar and policy advisor Prashant Yadav discusses fundamental lessons that industrialized supply chains can learn from frontier markets in this week's episode of the Patient Driven Supply Network with Roddy Martin. Prashant, uh, really welcome to you on the Tracelink Ford Leadership Series on Supply Chain. Uh, it's seriously an honor to have you with your experience in emerging markets and um, in the advisory roles that you're playing in the World Economic Forum, World Bank, etc., on PPEs and COVID. Um, it's, it's great to have somebody with your experience. So I'm going to ask you, introduce yourself, uh, talk a little about your roles. Obviously, the main theme is not COVID, but what have we learned from COVID in terms of agility and resilience of supply chains? And I'd love to hear somewhere in this discussion how you reflect on the difference between what agility means in emerging markets and what it does in, you know, the the first world markets. So welcome and uh, look forward to you introducing yourself, uh, Prashant, and thanks for making the time. Thank you, Ravi, and thanks for having me on this. Um, My name is Prashant Yadav. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, and I'm an affiliate professor at INSEAD. Uh, and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. I've had a career in academia focusing largely on research around uh, pharmaceutical and medical product supply chains. I've also um, worked as the strategy leader for supply chain at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, just before coming to my current role. And one of the good things about um, having a career which spans between academia and practice is that uh, a lot of groups ask you to join their um, advisory committees and, and um, things of that nature. So I've done that for various groups and thinking about how to structure supply chain investments, how to organize uh, supply chain talent pipeline in emerging markets, or in the cases of uh, global life sciences companies, how to think about the combination of both um, revenue growth and uh, putting more patients on, on access Uh, types of things for many of the larger pharma companies. So that's a quick summary of my career background, Roddy. That's great. Now, let's get on to this topic of agility and let's start off with, you know, your experience and you spent a lot of time in in Africa with the BMGF. How do they see, what do they see the differences in agility to the way we tend to see it in, in, in North, you know, in first world markets? I mean, we tend to see, I think, a lot more of an automated perspective that may be the wrong comment, but it's sort of more of an automated perspective to agility. Whereas my feeling from some of the BMGF work I did before you were involved was um, they focus a lot on people. People are really central to the whole theme of, of healthcare. So talk a little bit about your insights and any nuggets you can share. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad you start off by asking that question, Rari. So, I think in the industrialized world, uh, our view of agility has been, how do we make decisions faster? How do we create processes, systems, you know, the technology backbone that allows um, decision-making as things in our larger environment change. But I think what we find different in um, what we call as emerging markets or frontier markets is especially for healthcare supply chains, there is a much stronger role of country governments and um, public sector stakeholders in general, because they face a greater public 
scrutiny of their actions and decisions. Uh, it requires a much more consultative process for them to make decisions. And these decisions could be for things that you and I would say, well, this is a very high velocity decision in supply chain management, which shouldn't require such executive level decision-making or shouldn't require such a consensus building process. But even such decisions go through a larger consensus building process. Um, and, and that's, like I said, driven largely by the need for uh, intense uh, public scrutiny. And the second is that historically, we've, uh, we've seen that the technical know-how for operating, managing, um, and running a supply chain has been weaker in many um, emerging markets and has been weaker in the sense of how we from the uh, industrialized countries view as something to be mature. And we say, well, you know, the, the talent here isn't necessarily meeting what, what our standards of maturity are. But in reality, people have figured out, you know, multiple ingenious ways of operating the supply chain within the weak infrastructure that they have to work with or the weak resource base they have to work with. So there seems to be a disconnect between uh, our view in the lens of industrialized world supply chains and the local view, which is we've got this figured, we are doing it in some way. It's not that we have weak technical know-how or weak technical capacity. And you know the reality of most likely lies somewhere in between, but bringing the two points of view to convergence is what often takes much longer and therefore Agility in the supply chain requires a much stronger engagement with people on the ground, the ones who are making the executive level decisions in the government, but also the ones who are actually making uh, tactical and operational decisions to run the supply chain. And oftentimes we, we come down to the fact that um, agility is largely about, is, is the supply chain org structure designed in the right manner. Everything else comes after that. And that probably is true in also industrialized and in large global multinational supply chains. But I think it's a little bit more amplified when we see uh, frontier market supply chains in healthcare, especially where there is a larger government role. Yeah, you know, not to oversimplify or exaggerate this, but it's almost simplistically in emerging markets, you almost, you're looking at technology through a patient lens and in the first world markets, you're looking at the patient through a technology lens. Now, I mean, it's a very simple way of seeing things, but I, th I do think that if, if I look at a lot of the debates we're going through in healthcare today, it's about the systems we're using, not about the patient. So, you know, your comment when you saw the logo on, on the wall about the patient-centric supply chain, and it's kind of as an interesting background, as you know, um, Alessandra De Luca, who is the CIO of, of Merck KGA, uh, I worked with Alessandra when he was the CIO of Procter & Gamble. And in those days, Procter & Gamble had called their supply chain transformation uh, the consumer-driven supply network. So Alessandra has jumped on that and said, oh, well, this is about the patient-driven supply network. And so it's kind of a, an intriguing thought. How far... How realistic do you think we are? Because I, I know that, you know, out of my consumer goods days, we always thought uh, retail and the manufacturers would never get it together and share information. And boom, it suddenly just happened. 
And I think we're going to see the same thing in healthcare. You know, people say, oh, patient privacy and confidentiality of data. Where do you think we are? So firstly, I think, you know, both in the industrialized world, healthcare supply chain, and certainly in the frontier markets and, and you know, less resource settings, we see a lot of conversations and talk and debate about bringing patient centricity into the supply chain. And I, I have, uh, in a way, a, a, a two-folded view on this. On one side, I, I get excited that you know, those of us who work on supply chain design and, those of, um, and the others that we can influence through our advisory roles um, are being heed to the fact that supply chain design should be based on what, what patients need. On the other side, if we look at reality on the ground, um, you know, patient centricity would get into things such as um, where does a patient truly want to go to get their medicine? Um, where do they want to go the next time they want to get it? And it doesn't have to be the same place every time, right? Their convenience can make them go from a clinic to a pharmacy to a little drug shop somewhere back to a clinic the next time or even a little kiosk or a little pickup point. So um, our ability to understand that preference remains extremely weak everywhere in the world. And it's not because of um, lack of interest or lack of technology to be able to do that. I think it's largely because um, we have systems and efforts that remain disconnected at multiple levels, right? So we see efforts which are uh, at the you know, global corporate level, but their execution at the point of sale, at the point of delivery, uh, doesn't have the incentives that flow through the system. Uh, same thing with you know, global health supply chains or supply chains for health products in, in frontier markets, where at the, uh, the level in Washington, D.C., and uh, Geneva, and Seattle, and London, we see uh, a lot of focus on patient-centric supply chain. But when you talk to the person who is actually deciding um, where to allocate scarce or scarce inventory of medicines or other health products, they are still prioritizing based on a top-down model in their right. mind, which is what they've inherited over years of working on it. So I think that's a disconnect between, yes, we, we, we see some of this, but in reality, very little actual implementation occurring around this. And, and I think that, you know, in, and, and I actually love you calling the markets frontier markets rather than emerging markets as, a, as an African, Southern African at heart. I much prefer frontier markets than emerging markets. It sounds like I should walk out of a jungle when I come out of an emerging market. So it's, it's probably a lot more uh, respectable to call them frontier markets. What, what would you say, you know, the biggest challenges in those frontier markets are with regards to healthcare? Because, you know, the reality is that, you know, unlike the United States, where even though we're, you know, X number of states uh, in Africa, you're X number of countries. And, and many of those countries, some of them are at war with each other and they don't want to share information. They don't want their stuff to be seen by each other. So, so there are very distinct differences between healthcare in emerging markets where uh, you have these countries and you have politics at play. Um, where do you think that is? I mean, what comments would you make around that statement? 
So I think oftentimes when, times when we hear about um, frontier market healthcare supply chains, the focus tends to be on the physical flow, right? The logistics. So we are talking about environments where there are uh, no roads or the trucks don't work on our um, you know, warehouse infrastructure is so weak. So it largely focuses on infrastructure weaknesses. But the reality is that um, our, our bigger challenges lie with money flow and information flow. So firstly, I think in frontier markets, there are two kinds of uh, money flow issues at, at play. The first is money that goes into buying healthcare products that comes from, let's say, international sources, whether it is uh, some kind of development assistance dollars from high-income country governments or some other loans and other mechanisms from World Bank and groups like that. The timing of that money uh, oftentimes doesn't synchronize very well with the way we want the timing to be from a supply chain standpoint, right? So if a country is to receive money at a in a given month and if there are delays in receiving it, all of the planning we do... Right. Are, the second money flow is what patients pay in out-of-pocket or self-pay markets, right? So if someone goes to a little pharmacy and is paying out-of-pocket or to in a clinic, there the challenge is that um, how much they pay for a, a medicine is not as correlated with how much a manufacturer or pharmaceutical company charges. It depends upon a number of intermediaries in the channel, a wholesaler, a sub-wholesaler, a sub-sub-wholesaler, a retailer, uh, each one of them charges, as you would imagine, some kind of a markup. So the retail prices they pay actually oftentimes are higher than what uh, someone in a developed country would pay. So those are two of the, the financial flow challenges. And then couple this with information flow, which is you know the end demand signal about what's being what's in stock, what's being used, what's being dispensed is almost non-existent once you leave aside a few of the countries that have made early advances in that. And so to operate a supply chain where, yes, there are infrastructure constraints, you couple that with the uncertainty in money flow, and then you, on top of that, you add the fact that you have very little information to act on. Now you are operating an environment where um, many of the concepts that we design in supply chain management suddenly start appearing very theoretical. Because if you want to sequence what you'll do first, uh, the kinds of things that we work on industrialized world supply chains oftentimes appear to be, oh, I will get to that, but I've got much bigger problems to solve. Right. And that's the, the chasm or the disconnect we sometimes see. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure that's very applicable in the whole I mean, if you if you take you know unreliable supply, unpredictable money supply or flow, you take an accurate demand forecast accuracy, you're pretty pretty well flying blind, right? I mean, you can do as best as you can. Um, you're going to have to at some other point in time, if you can afford to, play around with inventory, and that's the only way uh, that you can guarantee supply. And we all know that they don't necessarily have the privilege of playing around with hundreds of days worth of inventory just to buffer supply. So one of the other roles that I found fascinating was your advisory role uh, to, let's say, big international bodies on, on PPE expenditure and funds and big projects, etc. Any nuggets without compromising anybody that you can share 
in in that domain because I, I'm pretty sure that you know lots of stuff has has crept through the woodwork and and lots of big projects that shouldn't have been and you may have had to have put your finger on it and say, nah, that really shouldn't be doing it that way. Any nuggets you can share with us? Yeah, so firstly, I think um, a lot of development uh, finance and development assistance um, resources are going towards equipping and enabling um, low and lower middle income countries to buy COVID-19 related supplies and supplies would include you know, test kits and PPE and, and more sophisticated medical equipment and also medicines. And uh, in a market which has global constraints where you know, even um, countries such as the US and many countries in Europe are unable to fulfill their demand, it becomes much harder to get supplies needed for let's say countries in Africa or South Asia or, or many other parts of the world. And then the second, um, bigger challenges that let's say you are able to you know get the supplies how do you make the both the international logistics but uh, more importantly the in-country supply chain to function um, because you do want a fast response system right i mean if, if you've been able to get test kits if you've been able to get ppe in sufficient quantities for a country you want to make sure that it gets to the intended users or beneficiaries as quickly as possible. And running in a fast response supply chains in a large scale manner, so not necessarily operating with a disaster relief mentality, but operating with a building a system mentality is something that depends upon an information infrastructure of flow and stock information, right? Simple things that, that matter in running a supply chain. Uh, and we don't have the luxury of time to set up the, the systems for stock and flow management. I think many of us who worked in this have been saying this for you know, quite a period of time, that this is an important system component to build. In places where such systems have been built, um, South Africa would be one example, it becomes much easier to just leverage the current supply chain information architecture and move things in a responsive manner without compromising anything about where the product is going, is, it, is there any diversion, things like that. But in places where such investments have not been made in the past, there is very little that can be done. So I think it's just a, a very important and in a way sobering reminder for why we need to think about supply chain information systems uh, in the right way for low resource settings or for frontier markets for healthcare in particular. Yeah, and, and you know, it brings to mind as you were talking the, you know, and without naming any countries, I mean, there's this recent country that where they've, uh, they've found an official who's been, you know, counterfeiting and, and diverting test kits. And I, I mean, that has to be, and not to say that Africa is the only place those things happen, but, you know, as Shabur says, when the opportunity comes around, the bad people come out of the woodwork. And, and I think that with test kits and vaccines and going forward into the future, we're going to see a lot of the, the bad folks come out of the woodwork and start exploiting, you know, the, the, the global scenario, the global pandemic, just because people want to believe that there are solutions, but they don't actually have the means to validate that the fact that it's not counterfeit or that it's safe or that it's uh, 
it's secure. So, so I would imagine that's something that uh, big institutions like the World Bank and and uh, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you know, have to be really wary of because I, I think we're probably as testing, you know, if it hasn't already ramped up as testing ramps up even further, there's that bigger risk that I can go and buy a counterfeit test kit. Uh, and by the time the, the batch is finished, the person that made it is headed for the hills with their money and you'll never see them again. So I would imagine that level of governance is a big concern to the whole global healthcare system because it's obviously ripe for exploitation. So uh, Prashant, if, if I had to ask you for one sort of concluding nugget that you'd like to leave, you know, the audience of, of folks, and, and many of them are going to be first world um, supply chain people who are used to the discussion of IT and demand forecast accuracy and sales and operations planning and you know, as Maeve keeps reminding me, those kind of things don't really turn people on in Africa, right? What nugget would you leave the audience with in respect of these frontier markets and getting healthcare right, so to speak, if there was such a thing? Yeah, so I think the, the most important thing to keep in mind is that there are a lot of, you know, very bright and ingenuous people who have you know, entrepreneurial spirit and passion and, and are trying to create solutions for running the, the supply chains in their countries in a better way by using uh, information technology and business model innovation and so on. And I think we have to find a way to marry that with what we all in an uh, industrialized world supply chain working largely with let's say global multinationals view and create a way for them to plug in uh, their local solutions into some kind of an information hub for supply chain that we all help create. Instead of thinking that here is our supply chain information solution and let's see how quickly can we implement it in Nigeria or Kenya or India. So I think if, if that's the mindset and that's the approach and framework we work with, uh, I, I actually get excited about the fact that we may end up learning quite a few very interesting things from clever people who are trying to solve supply chain information problems uh, within, the, within very strict resource constraints. And that will yeah. be exciting uh, for all of us. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty exciting. I and mean, when you think about the rate of cell phone growth in Southern Africa and what they are doing with cell phones. And then you look at, you know, the, the visibility and analytics, the band that the BMGF defined. I think that that's an incredibly exciting idea that you could have a, you know, a platform in the sky, in the cloud, um, that really is the point at which, you know, money or product gets deposited and then allocated but it's not country specific and it's a platform uh, and, and you can impose all sorts of processes and algorithms and rules, but nobody owns this. It's not a control tower. I remember right in the beginning of the BMGF uh, initiative where they said, no, 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 we're not calling this a control tower because Kenya is not going to want to know that uh, Uganda has the control tower for Africa. So we're going to call it a visibility analytics network in the sky. And it's really Uber over the whole of Africa. And it gives visibility 
uh, to everybody in a sort of an, in a governance-centric way. So I think it's very exciting because, to your point, we may find that we catapult um, opportunities in Africa because we are solving the problems at such a simple level that we're not staring ourselves blind at the complexity of all these massively complex um, first world markets uh, and getting stuck, quite honestly, in the, in the complexity. So, you know, thank you very much, uh, Prashant, for making the time to be with us. It's really an honor. And uh, I look forward to going on and interacting with you further as we go forward and, and uh, to hear how all of the initiatives that you're busy with uh, keep going. So thanks for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ari. Enjoy it.